Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be here with you. It's, it's been a while since I've preached. I've been in with the kids an awful lot, though. So, um, so it's been a while since I've preached to grown-ups, I guess is what I should say. Um, so just to ease myself into it, I kind of thought we'd start with an active game, and then we'd do our teaching time, and then we'd finish off with a craft, if that's okay with you guys. Um, I also have, um, I grabbed a couple of the things of fruit snacks. So if anybody is like feeling a little bit low blood sugar um, during, the, during the sermon, just let me know and I'll, you know, I can kind of wing one out to you. Dave, I know you said you were, you were pretty tired, so let me know. We can, um, and if I start eating them partway through that, you know, you know, I, I do, that is one of my favorite parts of teaching the kids is that I get to eat some fruit snacks in the middle of church. Um, so we've been going through Romans, as you know, and, and, and a lot of Romans, especially kind of the the middle chunk has some very clear, some very um, loved expositions of the gospel, right? Things that we memorize, things that we use in evangelism, things that we, you put in tracks, things like uh, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, that chunk we went through, and it was—I mean—we really got um, just a full exposition of the gospel. Um, but as we've seen the past month or two, Romans also has some some difficult and and complicated um, passages in it. Some that you have to approach carefully and thoughtfully, and that are just not easy to understand at first blush. So, what I like about today's passage, what I like about this passage we've started with today, is that it actually has a disclaimer up front that kind of gets me off the hook. Um, well, it says, lest you be wise in your own sight, in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So Paul's telling us right off the bat a couple of things. Um, first, he's, he's basically saying this is going to be tricky, right? This is going to be tricky, tricky, and it's going to be a little humbling, This what I'm going to tell you next in this little section here. So it's clear as we look at this, just in the way that that he kind of dives right into lest you be wise in your own sight. It's clear just from the context that this is coming in the midst of um, a a greater discussion, a larger discussion that Paul has been happening. And of course, that's also clear because we're in the middle of the chapter and we've been studying this. We know Paul's been on this big exposition talking about this problem, um, this this confusing problem that that many were trying to figure out, which is that... um, the body of Christian believers, which had started mostly Jewish and had come out of, obviously, a Jewish tradition, was becoming largely Gentile. And um, Mike has preached a lot about that, about Paul wrestling with that issue. He, um, he's, he's approached it in a couple of different ways to help us make sense of it. And he's talked about, Paul's talked about how God, through his sovereign choice, has brought in Gentiles as well as some Jews. He's been showing us, um, using examples of Jacob and Esau, um, quoting Hosea and Isaiah and Moses and David, um, trying to show us how God has always been sovereign in His choices, how He's been consistent throughout history in saving men and women um, by grace through faith. So all of this is pretty heady intellectual stuff, and, and as we read it, we, we've gotten, as, as much as it's been difficult, we've also sort of gotten this expanded view into, the, into the, the mind and the working of God in human history. And so having developed a lot of this and, and made his, his point as best he can, Paul's now saying, 
just in case this stuff that we've been talking about makes you feel like you're really starting to figure things out, that you're really starting to get it, and, and, and now you've, you, you've got God dialed in, let me try and give you a glimpse into how complex this really is. So you might be thinking, are you kidding me? This hasn't made me feel like I've got God all figured out. If anything, the last few weeks has made me feel less confident and less sure. And certainly that is a response to all of this, to these complex things. Um, and, and if that's kind of where you're at, I think there's something for you in this passage as well. Um, but I think there's also a response that, that does start to feel like, wow, I'm really starting to get God. As we get into thicker theology, there is a response uh, that we have of like starting to feel like we've, we've, we've got God figured out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can have that effect on us. And so an analogy from science, forgive me if you're not a science person, um, but in the early part of the last century, science was exploding. We were, there were all of the physics and, and psychology and zoology and sociology. We were really starting to understand all kinds of things. Science was just going, going crazy. Um, and um, as, we, as that happened, a lot of the educated world felt like we can, if you look at some of the writings of the early part of last century, like they, like they, there was a sense of where we can solve any problem with the proper application of science. We can just, we can just science it. We can understand it. We can, we can work it through the details. And uh, there was a sort of, uh, a sort of hope of like science is going to solve all of our problems. Then Einstein came along. And um, said, hey, all of this physics you've been learning, like all of, the, the, all of this crazy physics about how cannonballs fly and all of these things, those are mostly true, but it's actually way more complicated than you think. Um, and in a sense, his research was kind of humbling because it showed like, wow, we've got this much figured out and it's, and it's this much. And, it's, and it's, if you followed science, it's grown from there into quantum physics and, and all of these things. And I, Here, hang on. <laughs> Um, sorry, I'm going to get back to the Bible in a minute. Um, but as these things have begun to get developed, it's not that the, the, we have not thought that the world is rational and logical, but, but what, what scientists have realized, and when you read modern scientists, there's a humility almost where they're like, you guys, it's way bigger than we thought. It's way more complicated than we thought. I think there's a similar thing going on here in our passage. Paul's saying, if everything we've been talking about makes you feel like you're really figuring God out, let me show you something. Let me, let me broaden your horizons just a little bit to give you a, a bigger sense of what God is doing. Because there is that risk when we study these deep things of God, um, where we, we a, a friend of mine I was talking to this week, he called it, he called it box and shelf theology, where we, where we study some aspect of God and it's complicated, but we wrestle with it and we get through it. We go, oh, okay, I get it. And then we, we put that, the, that idea about God in a box and we slide it on a shelf. Box and, I like that, the box and shelf theology. I hadn't heard that before. You know, the idea of like God's sovereignty, complicated issue. Okay, I've wrestled through it in the box, on the shelf. I get it. I understand that aspect of God now. And don't get me wrong. I appreciate systematic theology. It is a good thing. Those of you who love systematic theology, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good in it, right? It gives us terms to use, things like omniscience and, and omnipotence and um, penal, substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement. These, these phrases and these ways of thinking about God are useful and helpful to us, right? This structure. Um, 
But the danger is that we oversimplify God. The analogy I always like to say is that um, I would like to see somebody teach a class in um, systematic marriage. Like, that you'd get in trouble, wouldn't you, right? Like, you, you. so Paul says, in case that's happening, in case you are starting to over-systematize God through all of this teaching that we've done, let me show you a mystery. Let me show you a mystery. Now, a mystery, that's an interesting word, right? We think of... Um, Agatha Christie, we think of, of mystery books like there's a problem and we solve it. And it's not really the same word. Let me see. I've got, I've got some examples, though, of how the Bible uses the word mystery. The Old Testament, the, real, the main place you find it is Daniel, um, where Daniel is talking to the king about this, um, the, 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 the dreams that he's had. And, and Daniel's answering the king, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. And, and, and he goes on and, and he says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed. So that's almost more the sense of the word that we're used to. The New Testament has a slightly different way of using it. Um, in 1 Corinthians, we, you maybe you're familiar with this. Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So it's not like it's a puzzle that he's figuring out. He's saying, I want to show you something here that that is mysterious, and, and, as, and Revelation uses it as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, um, and then John goes on to explain the, the, expl- the, this weird symbol, like what is that weird symbol? So I think the NIV Study Bible had a pretty good definition of how the New Testament uses mystery. It says, the word mystery does not necessarily refer to something puzzling or difficult to grasp, but to something that was previously hidden and is now revealed. I think that's a pretty good definition of it. I would add it usually refers to something that we wouldn't figure out on our own. Something that is not immediately apparent to us. Um, it, uh, it's something that you could search through the scripture and maybe not see by applying logic. There are things that God has to reveal to us. So, what is this mystery? What is this mystery that Paul says he wants to reveal to us here? He says he, It's in verse... Uh, 25. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So let's consider that for a minute. What it seems like Paul is saying here in verse 25 is that the reason many Gentiles are coming to faith and that many Jews are not is because God is hardening the heart of the Jews and stopping them from coming coming to faith so that they won't see the truth. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And if if you think that's what it seems to be saying, that is what it's saying. (laughs) The ESV study Bible, again, has a good breakdown for it, but it, it, it basically, there's three elements to it. At this time in salvation history, the majority of Israel has been hardened. The majority of Israel is not coming to faith. During this same time, the full number of Gentiles is being saved. Lots and lots of Gentiles are being saved and coming to faith. And there's a something coming down the road where God's going to do a new work in the future, and He will save all Israel. He will save a great number of them. That's odd, isn't it? That is a, that's, a, that's a weird thought, that, that God would do that. But that is what Paul is saying. And when you think about it, 
when you think about logically the resistance over over the whole history of of, of modern times, the, the resistance of Jewish people to the Messiah, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, in general, a lot of 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 Jewish by descent, Jewish by nationality, by race people, they tend to be, in general, a fairly intelligent society, a very God-seeking society. Certainly in, in the early part, in the time of Jesus, they were a very God-seeking society. They were very religious. But the majority of them, and their whole, their whole Old Testament predicts that this Messiah is going to come along. Jesus comes along, he fulfills all of the prophecies, and the majority of them go... Yeah, not seeing it. Right? I mean, it's weird. It doesn't make sense. And Paul is, is going to make some sense of it for us here. But, but first, he wants to remind us of something. He wants to remind us that God has been saying for a very long time that the purpose of the Messiah was, was to save Jews. That the purpose of the Messiah was to save Israel. So he goes on in verses 26 and 27, he says, And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion, from Israel, from the Jewish people. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is Israel. He will deliver, banish ungodliness from Jacob. And in this way, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul is reminding us, Jesus came for the Jews. He came with the purpose, and, and as the prophets had been saying, as Isaiah has said, as many of the prophets, his goal, his job, his purpose was centered around Israel. So Paul says we have to keep that in mind as we wrestle through this mystery. We have to keep in mind that God's intention is to show great mercy and salvation to Israel. So no matter what this may look like, no matter what this mystery may look like, we have to understand that that's going on. And then he says we, we have to have... We have to kind of look at this with, with, with two eyes, with, with, a, with a tension, with, a, with, with a, a nuanced view. We have to look at the Jewish people. He says, on the one hand, they are enemies. They are the enemies of the gospel. And, and in a very real sense, that was the truth. The Jewish people were the ones trying to kill Paul. They were the ones trying to destroy the church. They were enemies of the truth of the gospel getting out. Um, but he also says they are enemies for your sake. For whose sake? For the Gentiles. They're fighting against this, but they're doing it. For, but in them doing that, it's causing the gospel to spread more readily and quickly amongst the Gentiles. And, and so they are enemies, and he, but he puts that little note in there, for our sake. And um, I appreciated Don asked me this morning if he could read from the New Living Translation. And um, I, I think that actually was really helpful um, to hear the whole thing, it, it expounds it in a, in a helpful way. And, and in particular, I had actually brought up this one verse, um, eleven twenty-eight. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles. That's that's a more helpful way of, um, I think, than the ESV puts it. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. The, in the New Living Translation it makes it helpful. And I couldn't help myself. You know, we put up a picture of that. Do you guys remember the way? Does anybody remember the way Bibles? The old in the 70s. That, that, whenever I think of the New Living Translation, I think of that. It has nothing to do with the sermon. I just was having fun remembering that with the crazy pictures of hippies and things in them. And, yeah. <coughs> so off track. Um. <laughs> I've got them here. They're ready. Um, 
So he's going to develop this point more in a couple of verses. So hang on to that idea. But first he wants us to keep this other point in mind. He says, but as regards election, they, that is the Jewish people, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He wants us to remember as we think about God hardening them for, their sake, for the sake of us Gentiles, when he want, as we dive into how God is working between them and, and us and, and salvation, that the Jewish people are beloved because of their forefathers. They're the children of Abraham. They're the children of Isaac and Jacob and David. And God gave the Jewish people promises throughout the whole Old Testament. He made promises to their forefathers and to them as a people and God doesn't take those things back. Some of those promises, and it, it gets complicated, some of those tr- promises we have been invited into, but some of those are just for them, and they're unconditional. And, and, and he says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's not like God has changed his mind. So it's important for us to see these two things and to have them both in mind. And I think it's relevant to us today as we consider Jewish people and the nation of Israel. There have been times in history where, there's been many times in history where Christians have considered, have looked at the Jewish people and they've just seen them as enemies of the gospel. And, and bad, bad things have been done using that as a justification. They've just seen them as enemies of the gospel, the people who killed Jesus. Paul's saying, we need to remember that they're also the children of the promise. The Jewish people are still the children of the promise. They are still the people that, that, that Jesus came from. They are the elect for the sake of their forefathers. And, and many of God's, all of God's promises, they're still in effect. God does not take back the things that he promised. He may have hardened some of them for our sake, but he has not abandoned them. And as a quick aside, I think it's worth thinking about. When you're, when you're sharing the gospel, say you're sharing the gospel with a Jewish person. And you're talking to that person and you're sharing the gospel and you're trying to, you're trying to get them to see it. How do you know if that person that you're talking to is, is one of the hardened, one of the people God has hardened against, against salvation? The answer is you don't, right? You have no idea. Any more than anybody that, we, that, you share, that you share with, we have no idea. Yes, it's God who saves, but when we're sharing with people, when we're trying to make people see, uh, see the truth about God, we don't, we don't say, well... Has, has God elected them, or, or, or are they hardened, or are they not? That is, Paul giving us insight into how, how God works, it, it makes no difference on how we work. Does that, hopefully that makes sense. It's important for us to keep that in mind, that nothing changes the way that we evangelize, the way that we share the gospel. All right, so now Paul is going to dive into, in, in verses 30 through 32, he's going to dive into how this actually works. And he says in, in verses 30, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. You got that? Yeah. That's a mess, right? That is a mess of words. There's disobedience and there's mercy and there's mercy and there's disobedience in it. Um, but it's a little bit confusing, this, this thing that Paul's laying out. So, I made a diagram, and, and I'm going to be honest. You guys know Jeffrey when he preached a while a while ago. He he kind of diagrammed a sentence for you guys, and and to, he to help us understand a certain phrase. And I was a little jealous because I don't think I've ever had a diagram in one of my sermons. So, 
Um, and I feel like I should. I feel like I should have diagrams. And so I made a diagram. I don't know that this is going to... Well, I think it's kind of helpful. I don't think it's as good as what he did, but this is the best PowerPoint you can do for me. Um, and, and here's how Paul lays it out. He's basically saying, we were, all the Gentiles were disobedient. We started, we all started in disobedience. Jesus came along, and Israel was also disobedient. The result of their disobedience was God having mercy on the Gentiles. The result of God having mercy on the Gentiles is God having mercy on Israel. So, this idea that he's building out is that God gets to mercy on both the Gentiles and Israel and takes us both from a point of being disobedient at the beginning. So think about Paul's ministry. Where did he start preaching? Each, each city he came into, where did he start preaching? He started preaching in the Jewish synagogues, right? He would go in, he would preach in the synagogues where the Jews would gather, and he would, when they rejected him and kicked him out and sent him out, he would go and preach to the Gentiles. What was the result for the Gentiles? The result is because the Jews were disobedient, didn't listen to the message, there was blessing on the Gentiles. That's this right here. The disobedience of Israel led to mercy on the Gentiles. It led to more and more of the Gentiles hearing the message. The Jews, through their disobedience, led to mercy on the Gentiles. But Paul's telling us there's a time coming when the church of believing Gentiles when the mercy that God has shown to the church will catch the attention of the Jewish people and will cause a great number of them to come to faith. Now, how's that going to work? I have no idea. I mean, we've got some hints, right? But we don't really know. There, there, there are some who would say um, that in the end times, the, church, the Gentile church is going to be raptured, leaving most of the Gentile church gone, and that that will lead to a great revival amongst the Jewish people. Um, we don't know, but what we do know is this. The end result, God is going to have mercy on the Gentiles and on the Israel. He, there was going to be a great salvation amongst the Gentiles, which we're seeing right now. We're seeing the, the, the gospel going out to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And, and there will be a time yet to come when God is going to do a similar work in Israel. The end result is mercy and mercy. So, this is complicated. And, and, and this little glimpse we're getting into the way God's mind works, the way his workings are, it's almost like, if you're familiar with the beginning of Ezekiel, the wheels and the wheels and the, the complexity of, of, of God, this is, this is God. And if this is making you uncomfortable, then it's working, right? Paul told us up front, he gave us a disclaimer, if even my incredible graphic still is not making this clear to you, um, then you're actually kind of in the right place. Because Paul's point is that the workings of God are almost too much to comprehend. They're almost so complicated here that they are a, that, that it's a mystery. That it's a, that it's, that it's, and it's humbling. It should be humbling to, to get a glimpse into it. It reminds me of um, a thermodynamics class I took. I was a mechanical engineer, and I took a class on um, internal combustion engine with Professor Harry Dwyer. He was... Little gray-haired man with a with a with a real thick Dutch accent, happy, real happy guy, and he said, "I, I, I was going to try and do his accent, but I'm not." He said, "The first time you study thermodynamics, you you think I'm never going to understand this. 
You're in that class and you think, I'm never going to get this. And then in the second semester of taking it, you think, okay, okay, I'm starting to get it. And the third time, which is with the, this, this was a third time because it was sort of an advanced topics class on thermodynamics. The third time you understand it, you'll think, I am never going to understand this, but I can do it. I can do it. I can, I can live with it. And I think it's a good analogy because sometimes I think when we see some topic about God, we think, okay, I don't get that at all. And then we study it a little bit more and we start to think, okay, I got it. And we box and shelf it, right? We, okay, I think I got it. And then if you push into it a little bit deeper and you really get a glimpse of how complex God's workings are, you go, oh man, I am never going to wrap my head around how God really does things, but I can live with it. I'm okay, I'm okay with it. Like I, I, I get it enough. I get who he is enough that I, that I can live with it. There's another way, though, I admit that, that other than this, this sense of awe that, that I think Paul is hoping us to, Paul is hoping to have us come away with a sense of like acceptance, but also awe and, and amazement at the workings of God. But I think there's another way you could come away from what Paul has written here, more than just feeling humble. I think it's, you could come away from this feeling like, who is this God and is he really good? How can it be good for God to harden the hearts of anybody? Right? Well, it may be helpful to consider this if that's where you're at. The Bible tells us that God has been showing mercy to Israel for thousands of years. The Old Testament has him showing mercy to them in all sorts of ways for thousands of years. He's been reaching out to them through the, through the, the patriarchs, through, through the judges, through the kings, through the prophets, through all of these different means and methods and ways. God has extended mercy and grace to Israel, and over and over and over they've rejected him. And then, in the Gospels, we hear about God sending his very son, to, to, to be a Jewish man, to be born and to live among them and to teach, and, and to ultimately be crucified by them. And again, the Jewish people chose to reject him. They, they turned away from him. And, and it, it, if we're fair, we could say at that point, God would have been fully justified to say, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with you. We're, we're, some of the parables, Jesus kind of hints at that, like it would be completely reasonable for God to say, I'm done with you. And there, are, there have been many Christians throughout history who thought that's just what God did, right? That the, the Christians who have been abusive and, and terrible to Jews have said, well, God's done with them. He's, he's, he's dealing with us now. But, but those people haven't read, haven't read what, what Paul wrote here. Because Paul says God's not done with the Jewish people. In fact, he's using us, the salvation he's, he's reaping among us, to ultimately show more mercy to Israel. There will come a time when many of them are going to come to faith. The thread through this whole thing is mercy. The thread through this whole passage is mercy on as many as possible. And so you might say, well, why can't it just be mercy to everyone at the same time? Why does it have to be mercy here and then mercy here? Why can't, ultimately, I guess our question is, why can't, why can't God just save everybody? And I think when we ask that, we're showing that we don't really understand the problem. And here's a good analogy. I think it's a good analogy. Imagine... A dentist. Imagine you knew a dentist who had seen a thousand patients over the course of, of a year or two or whatever. And he said to you, over the course of that year of those thousand patients, I have only killed two. We would not think that was a good dentist, right? 
We would, sometimes it feels like we're going to die, but we don't expect to die when we go to the dentist. So that would be a bad dentist. Now imagine, on the other hand, I told you about a mortician who, over the course of a couple of years, had received and processed a thousand dead bodies. And over the course of that time, he was like, two of them actually came back to life while I was working on them. We would say that was a good mortician, right? That's the mortician I want to go to. Is that a weird analogy? But, but I think our problem is, of mankind, is that we think of ourselves as dental patients, right? We think of our sin as a sore tooth. And the Bible says, no, no, your, problem, your, your sin, you're a corpse. You are much more like a, a mortician patient. You're not really a patient and a mortician, but you get the, you're much more like a, a client. You're much more like a whatever. You're... <laughs> You're much more like somebody at a mortician than you are at somebody at a dentist. And so if any of you are, are saved and brought back to life, that is miraculous and that is mercy. The fact that there's a church here, mostly all of us sitting here that are saved is absolutely miraculous and, and, and merciful on God's part. So finally, I think it's worth considering, maybe, maybe you're in a place where you're like merciful, Oh, no, I just, I don't see, I mean, there there could be people listening who who just aren't even sure if God is real. And I guess I would say, if somebody is hearing this, who would would say, I don't even know that, that the God of the Bible is real. If nothing else, I think this passage would say, the God of the Bible is not a two dimensional construct. He is not, the Bible does not present a simple or easy to understand or contrived God. Um, the Bible presents a God whose purposes and ways are incredibly complex, are incredibly nuanced. And my hope is that if somebody is struggling to know if the God of the Bible is real, at least they could acknowledge that, that, that this is no, this is no uh, as C.S. Lewis put it, this is no tame lion. You know the lion from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? They say that he's no tame lion. Aslan is no tame lion. God, the God of the Bible is not simple. So how do I wrap this up? I think it's worth circling back to Romans 11, um, earlier in the chapter, verses 11 through 12. If you have your Bible open, if you look back there. Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble? He's talking about the Jews. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So earlier in the chapter, Paul has has asked this question. If their trespass, if, if if the failure of the Jews to see Jesus as the Messiah, their failure to come to saving faith, if that has meant the riches that we see now, the riches that we have in, in, in this, in, in getting to, to, to know God as, and seeing the gospel spread amongst the Gentile nations, if the failure of the Jews to see God led to these immense riches, imagine how sweet it's going to be when they're fully included. Imagine the riches coming. Paul is saying that time is coming. Now, like I said, I don't know what, when it's coming. I don't, I don't personally I, I, don't, I don't know, and I don't know what it's going to look like. But, but I do know this. There is greater glory to look forward to. There is greater joy and treasures to look forward to us as Gentiles. There's, God's work isn't done in salvation. 
not just in the day-by-day salvation of, of Gentiles that we see, which is a good thing in missionary work and in and the work around us, but there's this great salvation coming to Israel that we're going to get to witness in one way or another, and it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be even sweeter, even more wonderful than the gospel, than the, than the, the story of the church that we see now. And that's a, that's a pretty neat thing to look forward to, I think. It's a pretty sweet thing. So let's go ahead and pray. Oh God, we acknowledge that you are, you are greater, you are more rich and complex and, and beyond our understanding than, than, we, than we often acknowledge. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you that, that there is so much to you and so much to learn that we will never get tired of learning about you, though we live eternity in your presence. Thank you, God, that you have not abandoned the Jewish people, and that you have great plans for them still. Let that be an encouragement to our hearts, God, to understand the great mercy and love that is who you are. I pray that we would be encouraged by it this morning, and that we would, we would go just with that knowledge of, of what a good and glorious God we serve. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.